I was actually familiar with today's guest store prior to even knowing who owned it, and that man is Brian Davis, a close personal friend of previous Standard Age podcast guest Jeremy Kirkland. Brian was among the many of us who were into punk and hardcore in high school only to find our career paths leading us to fashion. We discuss what it's like working retail at an early age and the role of respect within the profession. He describes his work ethic and how he manifested that in even the most mundane of tasks. Brian founded his vintage apparel company Wooden Sleepers during the menswear blog era and is unofficially yet almost absolutely the first vintage menswear company that was offered online direct to consumer. Brian is a native New Yorker who has an incredible point of view and a knack for finding the good stuff when it comes to sourcing, be it a vintage L.L. Bean sweater or Deadstock Brooks Brothers Oxfords. He explains why vintage was for him and why it's worth its weight in gold. He later goes into how the brand began existing on its own enough to spark interest in private label goods being sold in Japan. We have a very meaningful walk down the path of authenticity and how it relates to brands on social media, and we even discuss who serves the best slice of pizza in the city. So for you foodies out there, feel free to add us in the DMs regarding what Brian refers to as the Rolex Submariner of pizza. I completely agree with his positioning on the matter. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Mr. Brian Davis, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me and uh, sharing your platform. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, totally. Obviously, um, we share a mutual friend in Jeremy Kirkland. Uh, You are much closer to Jeremy than I am, but he is... uh, graciously dedicated his time for an episode and uh I, I really enjoyed my chat with him so i'm stoked to have you on that's that's my man so typically these things start out with a little background you know um you are from long island yes that's correct yep east R- end of long island uh little town called kutchog uh on the north fork which if you are driving through and you blink you will probably miss it Okay, gotcha. So what were your folks doing when you were a kid? Like, what did they do for work? So I actually grew up out there with my grandparents. And um, my grandma was, a she was in real estate. Um, she worked in a tiny little kind of real estate office out there. And then later uh, volunteered at the uh, Eastern Long Island Hospital a thrift store, which is sort of a funny uh, connecting of dots that I'm sure we'll get into later uh, as it relates to my interest in vintage clothing. Sure. Yeah. When she retired, she ended up volunteering at this place called the Opportunity Shop, which is like a wonderful thrift store that still exists out there in the town of Greenport. Um, And my grandfather worked uh, at the local uh, liquor store there right in town. So, um, and they were, they both like worked, I think, like up until they died. So these were both like post like retirement type of careers. I, I think I was very young uh, at that time. So sorry, I don't sure. know on some of the details. Yeah, no, no, it's all good. Um, I guess she was mostly in residential real estate. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I yeah. don't think there's much commercial real estate out there except for farms. Right. Well, and I was also just thinking by way of being a woman at the time in commercial real estate was probably like, trailblazer status if that was her gig yeah you know honestly i never really thought about it until just this moment but yeah i guess it was kind of an unusual career um career path so yeah that's cool so what uh what did you sort of gravitate towards subject wise like in high school and stuff like what were you into oh my gosh this is so funny i I, i'm already loving this podcast because like no one's ever asked me either of the two questions you've asked me so thank you for that (laughs) (laughs) right on man I actually, I hated high school. I almost failed out of high school. Um, I was a terrible student. I just could not wait to get out of there and be done with it uh, and move to New York City. That's like, I was singularly focused on doing that um, as I made my way through high school. Um, The only sort of like salvation that I had during that time was, being in punk rock and hardcore bands and skateboarding. Totally. 
like running on the cross country team with all the other, like at the time that was sort of like where all the misfits and like weirdos ended up. Um, although I did play sports as a, as a younger person and all the way up through high school. Um, with that said, you know, I didn't hate everything about it. Um, I actually had a creative writing teacher that I really loved and, um, I sort of fancied myself a writer, uh, when I was in high school and I even worked at our local town newspaper, uh, for a while and sort of always envisioned myself, uh, getting into a career that involved writing, um, whether that was an editor working for a magazine or a newspaper or something like that. Um, and life just sort of took me in a different direction, but that, that was always something that was really near and dear to my heart, even studied it at college um, and still uh, find it useful today, especially running wooden sleepers, you know, you have to write all the time. So it's just like, yeah, not exactly the way I intended it uh, working out, but I'm glad I, I have those muscles to flex still as needed. Yeah, totally. Where did you end up in college? Where'd you go to school? Uh, so I went to Hunter College, uh, which is like on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was awesome for like an 18-year-old kid from this kind of rural, know-nothing town on the east end of Long Island to go there where it was like mostly um, a commuter school. So it was like kids from the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, my immediate friend group was like so diverse in a way that I had never experienced and just met so many cool people. Um, actually left after my first semester, but ended up going back uh, like two years later and finishing uh, finishing up my degree. Um, so I just needed like a little reset. I think like most 18 year olds, I like didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had no yeah. money, just like stressed out. I yeah, yeah, to, totally. I yeah. Sort of like take a step back and, and paint houses for a year on Long Island and like figure out what the hell I was doing and then kind of went back and attacked it with a little more uh, a little more intention. Right, right. Yeah. I think I think the uh the gap year is sort of a lost art, but I feel like it's kind of making a resurgence for kids, like taking that year between, you know for the exact reason you stated basically. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I loved it, but I don't think I had it together right. mentally and also didn't really have like the support system, um, both like financially and emotionally to really navigate that. And it was a really, um, atypical sort of environment, like physical environment, like it didn't feel like a college campus at all. Right. It's not really. It's just like three buildings. Yeah, it's the Upper East Side of Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, you just like arrive there and you're like, okay, like, I guess I'm here now. It's not like you're walking through these like gates into like this, like Columbia, for example. You know, it's right. in the middle of Manhattan, but, you know, you walk through those gates and you are like transported into this totally different place. Um, same with like Fordham and, you know, a lot of uh, other schools are like that. Um, Hunter is not like that at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, um, so what are some of the virtues someone can heed from being broke working retail at a young age? Oh my God, everything. You know, I, I started working uh, when I was about 12 years old, raking leaves uh, for my friend's dad's landscaping company. Uh, and I always worked from that point on. And I worked pretty much every shit job you could imagine having uh, totally. in a small town as a kid. Um, whether that was like serving slices at the local pizzeria, ripping ticket stubs at the local movie theater. I cleaned cars at this like used car dealership, which was miserable. Um, I was a lifeguard at the like local town beach um, and so on and so forth. I stocked sodas at the local deli. And I think the big takeaway from all of that is uh, one, like, I think that it teaches you how to interact with people in the service industry in a respectful and courteous way because right. people are not always so respectful and courteous to people in the service industry. Um, and I know uh, every time someone was a jerk to me, I really resented that. And I, it just taught me from a young age to, to 
kind of go out of my way to try to speak respectfully to people. Um, even if I'm in a, in a challenging situation that might be like making me want to like bang my head against a wall, I still try to like keep it cool. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, and then I think also, and this is totally cliche, but just like the, the importance of no matter how menial the job might seem, um, trying to execute it at the highest level, you know, and, and that again, might sound like total bullshit. So I apologize to like any listeners who are rolling their eyes, but like, I swear I would come up with these games while I was working these jobs. Like when we had downtime at the pizzeria, I would have to fold the boxes and my thing would be like, how many boxes can I fold in a minute, you know, and totally. then try to that number and like try to I just wanted to be like the best box folder or if I was like cleaning the toilets at the movie theater I was like I want to clean the fucking toilets better than anybody else like that was just always how I was I was a hard worker from a really young age and I think I was like unusually consumed with the perception from my peers and bosses that I was a hard worker like I never right. wanted to be perceived as like like slacking off or not earning my keep because uh, that was just like important to me, even still today, like that's still something that's really important to me. Was that something that like you felt your grandparents sort of gave you positive feedback for? Like, where do you think that comes from? I don't think so. I don't know where that comes from, to be honest. I guess I was just always like concerned with my reputation. Yeah something I've carried uh, with me through wooden sleepers and, and, and outside of that as well. Just, I, I think reputation is like such a valuable currency and it's like all you've got really, you know? Sure. Yeah, no, that's super fair. Um, this wasn't a question, but it, it, it's creeping up because you used to serve slices. What's your, what's your favorite slice in Manhattan? Who's got the best slice? <laughs> that's really funny. Um, Gosh, you know, it's it's cliche, but I think it's cliche for a reason. Yeah. Um, I will really go out of my way to enjoy a slice from Joe's. Yes, West Village, Carmine Street. And yes. and he they opened one in Williamsburg, and that was actually the first time I'd experienced it. And I was like, damn, this is a really tasty slice. <laughs> like, yeah. believe the hype. And Sure. Like I'm, I'm with it. To me, that was like the 501 or the Chuck Taylor of pizza. I was <laughs> like, pizza. there's a re it's like the Submariner of like pizza. It's like, there's a reason why it's so hyped up and why everybody loves it. It's like a bona fide classic. Totally. Well, you're one of many who are into punk rock hardcore at a younger age that got into fashion. Like, was there a pivotal moment? I mean, you mentioned your grandmother working in a secondhand store. Um, what, what was the moment you realized you were like into clothes? I think it was way earlier than that, you know, and I, I think that it really did stem from music, you know, even before, uh, discovering like punk rock and hardcore music. Um, I came of age at a time when like alternative music and, um, and rap music were like the sort of dominant, uh, popular culture, or at least like sort of countercultural type of, uh, genres that were out there. So, um, growing up like in the early nineties with like Nirvana and Snoop Doggy Dog and, and all this stuff and like skateboarding and, and all the sort of music that I would be introduced to through like Thrasher magazine or like 411 skate videos, um, or just like seeing, t-shirts that like bands I liked were wearing and then being like oh because this was all like kind of pre-internet I know I'm like dating myself now but sure I think as like a youngster who is curious in this type of stuff um you had to be a little more resourceful and like I would notice if like Kurt Cobain was wearing like a you know a certain t-shirt of a band like a K Records band t-shirt and I'd be like okay well what's that you know and then I go right. research that and I, I was just emulating um, the way that he was dressing or that uh, any of my other favorite artists were dressing. Um, and I think that that's what sort of led me into vintage because a lot of that stuff um, was vintage or secondhand or just not stuff that you would find at the local mall, which for me was like an hour west of me. So I didn't right. really have like that much of an opportunity to 
you know, like my grandparents would bring me school clothes shopping once a year there. But like, otherwise, by the time I was old enough to sort of like pedal around on my skateboard and get from like point A to point B, and I had a couple bucks in my pocket, you know, I could go rifle through a stack of vintage t-shirts or like find some like funky, like wool cardigan or some ripped Levi's and felt like, okay, this is a way to express myself um, as a youngster, Um, you know, so anyway, that's that's sort of like the origin story of that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I was actually kind of surprised when you threw out two West Coast names, you know, Nirvana and Snoop Dogg, like <laughs> as references that were off the top of your head. That's interesting coming from New York. It is. And I mean, of course, like the first time I ever heard like Nas or Wu-Tang Clan or any yeah. of that, I was enamored. You know, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I was probably yeah. like, fifth grade or sixth grade or something and my mind was just blown and you know notorious big and all this stuff i kind of liked a a lot of that stuff equally um growing up um i think that uh i would say the west coast side sort of lends itself more to vintage though from an aesthetic standpoint i would agree yeah and i think it was also just timing like at that at that time like like those west coast artists were just dominating so even as a person coming up in new york um i hadn't like identified that loyalty based on geography yet i think as i got a little older um and made my way into like junior high and high school i started identifying like more things that were happening in new york and specifically on long island and discovering like the local hardcore scene for instance on long island was just completely mind altering because i had no idea well a that like that genre of music even existed and then right. me, that it was like thriving and that we happened to be in one of these real like epicenters of that uh style of music so it was really fun and a cool way to uh just spend time on the weekends <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's cool do you have a favorite concert or two like were what were a couple of concerts that are memorable that stick out I think, you know, the very first concert I ever went to was super memorable. Um, I remember my my grandmother asked me what I wanted for my birthday and I was in sixth grade. So I guess this must have been like, I don't even know, like 1992 or something, three. And uh, I told her that I wanted to go see Nine Inch Nails. No way. Concert. And I don't think she even knew who they were, but she said, yeah, okay, that, that's fine. Um, here's my credit card. And I, she had a rotary phone. And so I remember calling um, Ticketmaster and buying two tickets, one for me and one for my friend. And this was for um, when they were touring on the Downward Spiral. Yeah. They were like my favorite, favorite band. So it was super exciting to get to go see them because I knew like every lyric to every song. I was like super, super duper fan. And uh, yeah, we went to Nassau Coliseum. She drove us uh, in her like old white Pontiac and like sat in the parking lot doing crossword puzzles while we went in and just completely lost our minds for like two hours or whatever it was. And and then, yeah, my life was totally changed as a result of that. It was amazing. (laughs) Oh my God, that's incredible, man. Nine Inch Nails, oh man. It was a good first one. I think think had I had my way, I probably would have gone to see like New Kids on the Block or something not cool at all when I was younger, but that opportunity never presented itself. So by the time I had a little more developed musical taste, I I got to pick a really good one for my my first show. Oh man, that's amazing. Yeah. Bring us up to speed with how kind of like, with how Wooden Sleepers originated. Like- where did the idea come from and like what time frame was this? Yeah. So, I mean, Wooden Sleepers technically started in 2010 online, which is to put that in context, you know, like 2010 was an interesting time, 2009, 2010, because guys were really starting to talk about clothing online more. You had places like Style Forum, um, a lot of blogs started popping up, like a continuous lean, um, selectism, you know, there was just like a lot of energy and conversation around menswear at the time. And I had been into clothes and particularly into vintage from a really young age, like from the time I was in high school even. So fast forward all these years and um, 
I think I was just looking for something creative, something fun to do. I had my nine to five, which was fine, but it wasn't exactly the most fulfilling thing. Um, so I had this itch, like I wanted to do something. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, Allison, she was like, well, why don't you do something with vintage menswear? You seem to be really into that. Um, I could show you how to like set up a shop online and we'll photograph a little collection of stuff and sort of just do it. And I said, all right, you know, and I think like, had it been any other time that really may have been the end of the story, but because there was all this energy around menswear at that time online. And I guess the idea of doing a curated vintage menswear store on the internet that actually niche. had a point of view and an edit and a storytelling component and um, was sort of thoughtfully uh, prepared, like that didn't really exist. So, you know, whatever. That's like, I don't know if that's my claim to fame. It's not fucking uber or airbnb but i think the idea of putting like a curated vintage men's store online was sort of a novel concept at the time um the only other place you could really buy vintage clothing online was ebay which was like the wild west there was right. no brands no stores no nothing it was just sort of like you know this endless stream of, of uh, product so at the time i think we got attention because what we were doing was unique and it sort of tapped into this like interest in um, like classic American brands, like heritage brands. Um, and yeah, so we got press early on, like a lot of these early blogs sort of picked us up and were interested in what we were doing. We got invited to do some shows, some like early types of partnerships with people. So but those early days, like I don't think a lot of people that know me and are familiar with the brand even know about that time from like 2010 to 20, say 13 or so. Like the pop-up flea days. Yeah, because like I think what I'm best known for is the store, you know, yeah. and when I opened the store in 2014, um, that's when things really started to just sort of take off. Like that's when I left my day job, sort of like went all in on wooden sleepers and was just there all the time. And, and we started getting visitors from all over the world, all over the country, certainly all over New York. <laughs> and um, so it's funny to sort of like talk about those early like developmental days. Cause it was really just like something fun. Like at that point I didn't, view it as something that would maybe someday like be my like primary source of income or my career or like have led me through like all this different like it's been 10 years which is insane yeah it's crazy about, you know yeah it's awesome congratulations i mean that's a huge accomplishment like and especially on the heels of you know the financial crisis starting kind of like maybe on the uptick which is, is, I guess, virtuous, I guess, for you. But um, that, that, I mean, it's a leap of faith, right? Like, I mean, I think that I, I was too young and naive to even care or know. It, I was not affected by the financial crisis whatsoever. Right. What was your, what was your nine to five? I was just like working in retail. <laughs> you know what I mean? No way. Like I was just like working in retail and it was, it, I was totally unaffected by it because I was like, I don't have any money anyway. Right. <laughs> so like, uh, I'm not making light of it. I know it was horrible for a lot of people and it was completely fucked up situation. Um, but for me at that point in my life, like, sure, I saw it on the news, but it wasn't this like catastrophic thing. So to, to decide to like launch wooden sleepers at that point, it really, it didn't matter also because it cost nothing to start the business. Right. right. Yeah. No risk. Yeah. There was no risk at all. It was just something fun and totally innocent. Oh, amazing. So where does the, where does the name come from? The name. So Allison and I are chronic namers of things. Like I think it was from years of playing in bands and just like, always sort of keeping these lists of names, whether it would be for like a song or a band name or a 
something or some project or da da da. Like we both have this extensive list of names where it's like that that would be cool for something. We'll use that for something. And uh, wooden sleepers was actually on her list, and so she was very gracious enough to to give that name to me. Um, I just thought it had a nice ring to it. It it's another term for railroad ties, which um, are just like the wooden pieces that train tracks are laid over. So. You know, it, it felt uh, it felt relevant to like sort of the vintage Americana vibe that I was sort of uh, digging into at the time, and um, I thought it had a nice ring to it, and it looked cool written out. And um, the thing that I liked the most about it was that um, although I knew I was doing a vintage men's clothing store, I liked that it could sort of be anything. Like if right. I wanted to do a wooden sleepers cafe or a wooden sleepers airline or what you know what i mean <laughs> it's like the name it doesn't it, it's i wasn't uh it's meaningless it didn't hold into like you know yeah. red hook vintage right right it can only be that <laughs> right yeah totally what um so how did the store come about then was it um and and financially if you don't mind like was that like a friends and family thing or was that just the success of four years of business that allowed you to do it so I would have been terrified to borrow any money from anybody. So yeah. I did it all by myself. I had savings um, and I just tried to do it as inexpensively as possible. Uh, Red Hook was not the most desirable retail location in New York City by a long shot. Actually, if there was a list of the least desirable places to have a retail <laughs> store, that would probably be in the top five for sure. Um, we were one of the, I mean, not only were we the only clothing store there, we were like one of the only stores period. Right. It was a very desolate sort of destination type of place, but it had a vibe that I really connected with. Um, it's an old, old neighborhood that dates back to like this, the revolutionary war times. It's like talking cobblestone streets, like surrounded on three sides by water. It's like a stone's throw from New York Harbor. You've got like front facing view of the Statue of Liberty, one of the oldest like maritime dive bars that's there over a hundred years, Sonny's bars, like still there. The whole energy of the place, I was just like, this rules and it's really cheap. And if it's good, people will come, they'll find it and we'll be all right. Yeah. And uh, that was just like being young and idealistic and totally naive and ignorant about everything to do with retail. Um, but I did it anyway. And I think had I thought about it more, I probably would have psyched myself out and never have done anything at all because the truth of the matter was I wasn't going to be able to afford to do a store in Williamsburg or Soho or Lido or the Lower East Side even. Um, but Red Hook, it felt possible. It felt attainable. Right. And so I found a store that didn't really need much work. It had four walls. It had a storefront. It had a door. Like I didn't really have to do much to it except make it look how I wanted it to look. Um, and then, you know, people came and I, I think being off the beaten path worked to my advantage early on because Red Hook and Wooden Sleepers became sort of synonymous. And a lot of the early press I got talked about like being out here in Red Hook and how unusual that was. Right. Had I opened in Soho, it's like, yeah, who cares? Like a, there's a million retail stores here. Like who cares? It's not news. It's not interesting. You know what I mean? Right. Being out there, it was interesting. I think the thing that I took for granted uh, early on was just that importance of foot traffic. Because even as time went on and people would assume like, oh, Red Hook, uh, such a cool neighborhood like that must have like really popped off over time. But the reality was without a subway station there, it was still super isolated and difficult to get to. And you really had to want to go there. Yeah. If you like, there was no foot traffic. There was nobody just like that happened to be walking around, you know? Right, right. So, um, I definitely took for granted the importance of that, but 
Um, I don't have any regrets because I loved Red Hook. I loved being there. I was I was actually really sad to close the store, you know. But I right. felt like we had a good run of of five years. Felt like okay, that was a good that was a good run there. And these are sort of extenuating circumstances. So let me uh, again just sort of like step back and regroup and then plan for for what comes next. Right. So you you left there when exactly? It's within the last year, I know. Well, yeah. So we had to close in March, right? So everybody closed. The whole right. city closed down. Um, I didn't know that that was going to be the last time I was there. You know, I just like went home that day. Right. Figured, right. okay, like maybe we'll open back up in a couple of days or a week or something. You know, it's yeah. completely ludicrous in hindsight. Um, and then I just like quickly pivoted to online because I could, you know, that was just like pure luck. Like I happened to already have an e-commerce portion of my business. Like I happened to have a lot of stuff online already. So it was like, it took a lot of work, but it was doable. You know, right. it wasn't like, I know plenty of people who were like barbers or tattoo artists or work in the sure. restaurant industry or actors or theater, like, you know, those people couldn't do that. You know, at least for me, I was like, okay, well, if this is how it has to be, I'm going to throw everything in my car and bring it home and get to work basically. And just like right. hit the ground running. Um, and that's what I did. You know, it wasn't until like July that I started to think uh, about closing the store permanently. I'd like to take a minute to thank you for listening to the Standard Age podcast. It's certainly been a lot of fun sharing each guest's story, even during the craziest of times over the last year. The good news is it's allowed me to further focus on some of the elements that make Standard Age possible. I've done a ton of product development, some items for well over a year. If you'd like to support the podcast, the least expensive way is to simply rate and review the show on whatever platform you're on. Further, you can visit standard-h.com where you can purchase the brand's apparel or directly support the podcast under the accessories tab. I can't thank you guys enough for listening to the show and for all of your support, especially through social media. It's been so much fun interacting with you and all of the great feedback has been wonderful, so thank you. So many of you are into watches, whether you are just starting to collect them or if you're already in deep in discussing the extensive finishing of the movements. In fact, my most listened to episodes have been watch-related. For those of you interested in independent watch companies, Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California might just have what you're looking for. Previous listeners may be familiar with owner Tim Jackson from episode one of the Standard Age podcast. He and his team are certainly a wealth of information while offering incredible customer service. Tim and his team are quite literally made up of family and friends, so I'm confident you'll feel very much a part of their community even if it's your first visit. Of course, if California is out of reach, definitely visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. Or visit Tim's blog, Independent in Time, for a deeper watch dive. Now let's get back to the show. I mean, obviously your assortment speaks for itself, but like, what do you consider to be kind of the distinguishing factors that Wooden Sleepers has or possesses that, that other vintage companies don't? Well, you know, I think the most important thing with, with any business and any brand is having a distinct point of view. And I think right. that's really the thing that separated Wooden Sleepers from other vintage stores early on. Um, my experience going to a lot of vintage stores was that, well, for one thing, it was mostly women's wear. And then there'd be like one crummy rack of men's wear in the back that wasn't really like very considered. Um, and I think I thought, well, there's got to be a better way to do this, you know? And, and I think what what distinguished me early on was that edit, you know, that, that sort of, we're not going to have everything, but we're going to go deep on a couple key categories that I felt like really represented what American style was all about, whether that was like vintage military workwear, old, like preppy Ivy style kind of stuff, uh, workwear, you know, to me, like 
that was a representation of my personal style. That was a representation of the, the things that I thought were quintessentially American um, and, and what I wanted to represent uh, in the store. So I would say that, that the edit was really the thing that, uh, that separated me uh, from the pack. Sure. Well, you're currently, well, currently, you're now sold in Japan as well, right? Well, yeah. So the funny thing that happened with Wooden Sleepers was it it sort of took on a life of its own in terms of being a brand, you know, and, and I don't think that that was an accident. Um, I always treated wooden sleepers as a brand first and a store was just a, a component of that brand sure. and i think by by thinking about it that way um that's enabled me to do things like have private label pieces that people actually care about you know whether that's like simply a t-shirt with a logo on it or a hat or a tote bag or a sweatshirt or whatever or a candle um you know, I've, I've always since, since opening the store have, have had these things that I, I had early on envisioned just as like souvenirs for the shop. Right. But quickly I sort of realized, well, okay, like people I don't know are buying these things. So like the brand must be resonating with people um, because it's not just about the store. You know, I, I remember talking to my friend Ouija from the Brooklyn Circus, who I, I think is one of the strongest brands out there. And he's just such a genius when it comes to marketing and branding. And I, and I said, you know, do you think that the Wooden Sleepers private label items are dependent on the store? Do they need that context? Because right. like when I go to a diner, some like roadside diner and I see a t-shirt or a coffee mug and I'm there and it's been a cool day and I want to buy that just as like a little memento of that, you know, I'm not going to buy that t-shirt at another place. But he said, no, you know, it, it's not dependent on the store whatsoever. And the case in point was, yeah, the fact that we got picked up buy this store in Japan was crazy to me because I had assumed they just wanted to sell our vintage assortment, but they said, no, we just want your stuff. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So is that like a traditional wholesale type of relationship? Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it was, it yeah. was super easy. I guess I kind of had to figure it out because I didn't really come from like that's, I didn't come from that world, like sales uh, in that sense was sort of new to me, but I understood like the basics of it, you know, and essentially just had to like figure it out. I think from having the store already, like I'd certainly received enough line sheets, like I had carried third party brands in the store um to flesh out the assortment because like nobody wants vintage socks so i would carry right. socks from like american trench or like you know hats from like another brand you know what i mean just to sort of like flesh out the assortment in the store so that guys could in theory get like a head-to-toe look if they needed it you know we, we were like the first account to get like Sperry cloud cbos like that kind of stuff just i felt like it fit in with the vibe of the store but um Anyway, my point in bringing that up was because I had been on the receiving end of enough of those like line sheets and lookbooks and I understood like the margins and the markup and, and all that stuff just from like being on the buying side of it that when it came time to set that stuff up for selling, I was like, okay, well, I, I know what it's supposed to look like. I just have right. to just do. Right. You're basically reverse engineering what you do in the store anyway, right? From a pricing structure, you know? Yeah, um, totally. Well, sustainability is a huge topic of discussion these days, obviously, and uh, along with that, you know, waste, right? So vintage has picked up a lot of steam in certain corners of the world just due to the fact that it's creating less waste by, you know, upcycling, recycling, or just buying vintage so as to not produce new garments. Um, how much of that was a contributing factor for you to sell vintage? Was that even on the radar or... It wasn't, to be honest. Um, I just loved vintage clothing. And I always thought, like, even from a young age, like, I remember vividly sitting on the floor at a Borders that was, like, 45 minutes west of me 
on Long Island reading through like a starting a small business for dummies book thinking I would love to have a vintage clothing store. That's awesome. And didn't know what the hell I was doing. It took me many, many, many years to sort of arrive at that mm-hmm. um, and a whole nother career that I was in for like 12 years. But, um, you know, the sustainability part of it, I think um, that was not really like a big thing for me early on. Um, but I'll tell you, like once once I started having to talk about wooden sleepers more, which was challenging early on, right? To, to talk about like, well, what is it, you know? And I think things that were really meaningful to me early on um, have entered more of the mainstream conversation now. So what do I mean by that? Well, like things like repairing your clothes, right? Like mending is now like such a huge thing. Like if you search the hashtag visible mending on Instagram, there's like hundreds of thousands of people who have like done these cool little like stitched patchworky things on their jeans or on their shirt elbows. And it's like a whole community. There's like books about it now. And, um, you know, buying less, buy better was like something that we heard all the time in 2009, 2010, during like the whole Americana, like heritage thing. And that really resonated with me because I felt like, well, the quality um, to value proposition with vintage is incredible, right? So for me, if you're like a high school kid or a college kid, you don't have a lot of money, say you can spend, you know, you've got like a hundred bucks in your pocket or something, you know, you could go to like Aldo in the mall, right. And buy this like terrible pair of shoes that are going to fall apart in a year. Or you could like take that same hundred bucks and go on to eBay and buy a vintage pair of Aldens. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And like, no kid is going to be able to go buy a new pair of like shell cordovan aldens for eight hundred dollars you know what i mean but like if you are open to vintage if you're open to second hand the value of the, the the quality of product then that you're able to now sort of like get involved in is incredible yeah you go to some thrift store on the upper east side of manhattan like you know, it's in, it's insane the stuff you'll pull out there. You know, Brooks Brothers shirts, Stone Island, you know, whatever. Like cashmere sweaters, like you you name it. It's like the kind of stuff that would be unattainable for most younger people. <clears throat> but um, if you're interested in clothes and you want the best, you can't necessarily afford the best at retail. Yeah, vintage. That's like your entry point right there. So. For me, like the, it becoming destigmatized has been huge and so cool because for the longest time, shopping in thrift stores or wearing secondhand clothing was was stigmatized. That was like something you only did if you had to. And I shopped in thrift stores when I was a kid, and it, you know, there was an there was an aspect of it that was like embarrassing but then also it became cool for me at a young age because it was like all right this is different i can express myself in my own way and i ended up choosing to shop in thrift stores um so i just think that like the fact that vintage is now like part of the mainstream conversation is incredible i mean hell i did partnerships this past year with ralph lauren and todd snyder like two of the biggest men brands out there and both centered around vintage product, which is like, you know, it's not exactly like moving their bottom line, but the fact that they wanted to like highlight this stuff in a really thoughtful uh, way was incredible to me because the the platform was just, you, you hadn't seen it, you know, and for a brand like Patagonia to be doing what they're doing by like, selling vintage and repaired product on their site is just so cool. And I feel like the more brands that can get into this, the better, because it's just like, it's a win for the customer. It's a win for the environment and it's a win for the brand. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I feel like Ralph, Ralph's done that for, for Ralph. Like I'm not on a first name basis, but like, like Ralph Lauren, his, uh, I mean, he's done it for years, like with, especially within like his double RL stuff and, 
you know, doing like one-off pieces and unique pieces from that perspective. How did, how did those partnerships come up? Like even with Todd Snyder? You know, I, Todd was a customer of mine. Um, and then he just called me out of the blue and said that he was working on this LL Bean thing. And it's awesome. want to do something to support that. And I said, of course. Um, so I think it was just, it, having had the store for, for as many years as I did, like we serviced a lot of the design community in New York city. So, you know, a lot of fashion designers would come out to shop with us and, Ralph's designers certainly have stopped there. Um, so I, I just think like, I, it's not like I was chummy with these people or anything, you know, we weren't like going out for beers, but like I was on their radar. And I think uh, one of the things that I always really prided myself on with wooden sleepers was like not following trends and jumping from like one hot thing to the next, but rather like staying true to my vision and, just staying the course and really like digging in deep on the stuff that I loved and trying to be consistent um, and reliable for our customers and clients. So I think year after year of sort of like refining this vision for the brand and for the shop, um, people just start to notice, you know, and there, there are only so many good vintage stores in New York City. I mean, you'd think there'd be amazing ones everywhere but it's not really that way there's like four really great vintage stores <laughs> oh that's so funny um do you find any particular part of your job difficult or like running wooden sleepers like what's the hardest part well you know during a pandemic it's been really freaking hard because the name of the game is getting out and sourcing stuff and really like getting out on the road, like hitting like the flea markets and the, you know, there's like vintage clothing shows and there's estate sales and there's like talking to people and like going into houses. And like, I haven't been able to do any of that this past year. So that part of it has completely sucked. Um, but it's just forced me to be more creative, you know, and thankfully I had an entire retail stores worth of inventory that was not online. So I've been able to sort of figure out creative ways of like introducing that product that maybe I've been sitting on for a year, but no one's ever seen. So thankfully I had enough to sort of sustain me through this time um, because yeah, sourcing has been for me really difficult. Um, it's been basically non-existent unless I'm working with like the network of other sort of like pickers and dealers. If I'm looking for something specific for a customer or client or a project, you know, I can reach out to another dealer and be like, yo, do you have any like vintage LLB? And I'm working on this project, you know? Oh, cool. Cool. I don't want you to like talk about your sources too much because that's would be stupid. Um, <laughs> An approach I've always had is like trying to go where people are not. Right, right. No, that's fair. I don't want to like be getting in fights with people digging through piles of clothes. Like I'd rather just go like if everyone's over here, like I'm going to see what's over here. That's cool. That's I mean, that's it's smart, too, because then, you know, you're getting something borderline unique as well, because not everybody's feasting over it, you know. And you're not paying retail. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in the past, pre pre COVID, obviously, like what what importance did travel play to you or for you? Well, you know, I'm not going to front like I was one of these like American pickers kind of like <laughs> people like driving all over the country. So I really didn't have time for it to be honest because I was running a business and I like tending to the store was something that I really enjoyed doing. I liked being there. Um, yeah. It was never my intention to just like set up the store and have somebody else run it. Like I never hired like a store manager, you know what I mean? I pretty much just like ran it myself. I had like some really great people uh, supporting me in that over the years, um, just like part-time sort of sales associate capacity, but you know, really awesome people. And, um, but by and large, like it was a pretty small operation. I really liked being there. So it was rare that I would be away from the business for more than a few days. Um, with that said, like, 
of course I was traveling around the Northeast to source. Um, it wouldn't be unusual to drive out to like, you know, even like Western Pennsylvania or like Ohio or up to like, you know, upstate Maine. New York yeah. or, you know, yeah. So that just kind of came with the territory and you're, you're sort of following leads at that point. There, there was even a ton of uh, stuff like right in New York city where that was one of the cool things about having the store is like random people would come in and be like, Oh, I got stuff like this in my basement or whatever. And it's like, you don't know how many times I ended up in like the basement of some brownstone or like someone's apartment on upper East side. Like, you know, it's just like really weird. And you got to just sort of go with the flow. Cause you never know where like, oftentimes these conversations go nowhere people are like yeah right. i've got all this stuff and then it's like cool like let's set something up and then it never happens but then you know occasionally people do and it's amazing you know somebody's yeah. like you know somebody passes away they don't know what to do with the stuff it's sitting in bags it's like sentimental you know they'd like to see it go to a good place where it's going to be like treated respectfully and given a second life and you know, that's where I would really get to source a lot of the product for the store was like cir circumstances like that, where people just like, didn't have the heart to just like chuck the stuff. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So I love your Instagram stories and I want to know, I like, I want to know where the point comes from. The Brian Davis wooden sleepers. What's up people? Like where, where does the point come from? That's really funny you say that because uh, somebody else has pointed that out as well. No pun intended. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it, uh, so there's obviously like finger pointing was like really common in like hardcore, like youth crew, like oh, yeah. famously like finger pointing on the cover of um, Youth of Today album and like, <laughs> his whole athletic getup um, shirtless, of course. Um, right. So the, the finger point, it could be an homage to uh, my, my, young, my youth uh, in hardcore. Um, it could also have something to do with watching a lot of, um, I'm going to date myself because I still call it WWF, not WWE. Um, and there was definitely a lot of finger pointing and yelling at the camera uh, in WWF pro wrestling <laughs> and, re and referring to people as brother constantly. If you're, if what is it? Hulk Hogan. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's funny. I guess there's a little bit of persona evoking uh, there that, you know, I haven't really turned the camera on myself in a long time because I've just been like, this year has just been so weird and just so different. And um, I'm like home all the time. And I'm just like, I used to turn the camera on myself to like, walk people through the shop it was just like a functional thing yeah. where i was like hey like we got some new stuff like let let me walk you through it yeah yeah it's funny you know because i'm really like not that guy like it's much more like me to just be like behind the scenes and not really like that at all but i think part of it for me was um you know like every small brand is trying to appear bigger than they are. Right. And every big humongous company is trying to appear smaller, right? And it's all bullshit. Like it all just feels disingenuous no matter which way you're trying to go. So I think at a point for me with wooden sleepers, I was just like, you know what? The hell with this. Like I'm just going to be totally honest with people and let them in. And I think that that's served me really well, like showing people that like, look, this is a small business. Like this is like my crew. This is like my friends and family who are like in this with me in a supportive role. Um, and this is sort of what it's like, you know? And I, I felt like turning the camera on myself was part of that to just be like, Hey, like, what's up? Like, this is what we're doing. This is what I'm excited about. This is what's going on. This is maybe what's bothering me. This is like, just a way to let people in and, and just like, I mean, transparency is like such an overused word, but it's just like, that was it. It was just sort of like, you know what? I don't want to front like wooden sleepers is some gigantic thing. Right. Um, 
And I think that that was relatable, especially as we went through like having to like close our first store and move to a new location. And I was like, you know what, wouldn't it be interesting to show people what it was like to build out a store? Like I would be interested in that. So that's what I did. And then like the whole process of closing down the store, which, you know, I could see as being like kind of depressing, but at the same time, I was like, you know what, like, this is just a part of the story and we're going to come through this on the other side and, and move on. And that's exactly what I have done. So I felt like it was important to document um, not just the good shit, but the really rough stuff too. Cause ultimately like, I feel like there's probably a lot of people out following me, listening to your podcast who have like that entrepreneurial bug who are like thinking about starting a brand, like trying to do their own thing. And if the only thing I ever saw on people's Instagram was how great everything was, I would be like, you know what, this is like total, this is phony. Like this is not reality. If anything, it's the opposite. It's like hard all the time. And then there's like some good stuff that happens in there too. (laughs) Man, everything you just said resonates so much with me. Um, Everything from the like for standard H, right? Like it, it started out as like hats and t-shirts and some shorts and stuff like that. And, you know, I was in that camp a few years ago of like using the terminology and the vernacular of our, and, you know, and look at us and, and we, and, and, and now just through COVID, I've just been like, frankly, actually the, the girl I was talking to you about earlier, um, who's like my sister, Jessica, she, she was like, dude, you need to be the face of your brand. My best friend in Texas, he said the same thing. But kind of like you, like, I never wanted to be the brand. Like, I wanted the brand to be, like, I wanted to be sort of behind the scenes and the owner operator, if you will, creative director. But like, yeah. it, it isn't about me. If it were about me, I would have named it Wesley Smith. I didn't name it Wesley Smith for a reason, you know? Um, but that's just something I've literally been dipping my toe into within the last week of like putting my face in front of the camera and like doing Instagram lives and stuff like that. Like it's all new to me, but then to piggyback on what you were saying too, with like the social media thing, like I was in a really dark place about a month ago and like, because of COVID I've never been on social media more, you know? Like I've been buried in my phone probably more than I even realize. And it's tough, man. Like, especially when like you're competitive and you start comparing yourself to other people and that ain't healthy. And so everything you said, man, it's just like, yes, yes, yes. Everything, all of this. Yeah. Um, So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Oh, thank you. I mean, thank you. It's, I mean, it's like, it's tough for everybody. And I I think that's like the death blow is like comparing yourself to other people. And I do it all the time. Like even before opening my first store, I was just like, what business do I have doing this? Like, is my stuff good enough? There are people who have better stuff. Like what, what like gives me the right to do this, that kind of like thinking. And it's just like, you know what? every single day I just like fought through that feeling and said the hell with it. Like, I'm just going to keep going. And it was through pure stubbornness and perseverance that the thing even saw the light of day. It was just fighting every single day to say, you know what, um, this deserves a chance and I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill it before it even starts. Yeah. Is there any sort of secret sauce to developing your own candles? Uh, it's just, honestly, it's, it's just like trial and error. Um, it's finding what you like, you know, it's, it's sort of what you might imagine that process being like, there's like an infinite number of combinations of scents that you can experiment with until you sort of find the one that's like yeah that that's it and thank god i didn't have to do that myself i would have never ever done that that was all allison like she was the one who was like you should have a candle it'll make the store smell nice and that was how that whole thing started and she figured out how to make it and like 
figured out the scent and would just sort of like wave things in front of my nose and be like, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? What do you think of this? <laughs> and, um, and yeah, that, that's how that all went down. Um, it, it was only when she uh, got pregnant um, and couldn't make the candles anymore that I had to learn how to do it. <laughs> so, oh, that's funny. Yeah. And oh, that's crazy. So what's, what's kind of next for wooden sleepers? Are there any plans for additional growth? I mean, obviously with the move during COVID you're in, you're in an old yoga studio, right? If I remember correctly. Or yeah, something? it's funny. I haven't really like formally announced that yet. I, I sort of was like teasing it when I first got the keys um, in, I guess it was like August or September um, cause I was excited about it, but it, it was really something where I'm sure like everybody, I just like, couldn't work at home anymore. I, it was like <laughs> the room that I had occupied was becoming like hoarders. It was like insane. Um, it was the dining room in my house. And I was just like, I felt guilty. Like I want to give my family their dining room back. Like I couldn't let my daughter like run through here because I was scared of like a stack of eight bins like falling on her. And I was just like, you know what? This is sucks. And I, I love being at home, but I can't keep doing this in this way. It's like, um, there wasn't enough like physical space. Right. Um, so it was really like when I decided to close the store and had to get everything out of there was pretty much like I immediately got the, the studio. Um, because cool. I just knew I needed some place. And when I had originally announced that I was closing the store, I think the, what I had been messaging out to people was like, don't worry, like we're going to open a bigger and better store. And that's what I thought at the time. Um, but I don't think anybody knew how COVID was going to progress and what that was really going to, to be like. And I think for now, like, it still feels up in the air. So the idea of opening another retail store for me right now is like, it's really not even something I'm thinking about. I, right. I think I will do that at some point, but um, being a small business owner, I'm much more pragmatic and have to think about like, okay, well, like what's happening today? Like, how are we doing the business today and in the weeks to come and in the months to come? Um, there's always going to be an opportunity to do another store. Um, for me, the studio was sort of this cool, like intermediate uh, step where I could get out of my house, actually bring all the fixtures and furniture that was at the store to this space, set it up more or less like a mirror image of the store, but run it by appointment. And Right. And still have it be a functional workspace where I can manage my e-commerce and all the other kind of special projects that um, have been coming down the pipeline as well. Um, so it'll be like half by appointment, showroom, half actual workspace, um, functional sort of fulfillment center, like photography studio, like all the other bits that go into running this thing. Sure. And then when the time comes, yeah, I... I definitely intend on uh, inviting people up to check that out, to shop, whether it's like design clients, people who have shopped with me in the past. Um, it's not in New York City. It's like just north of the city. So it feels um, a little removed, but in a good way. It's like a two minute walk from my house and it's only like 30 minutes outside of the city. So I feel like oh, that's awesome. people come up, they'll be able to. And um, Honestly, having like in-person appointments isn't really the, the priority for me right now, at least. But um, once it's set up for that, um, you know, I think it'll be, we'll figure out the, the safest and smartest way to do that. Sure. Well, Brian, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, is there anything else you wanted to promote or talk about? Uh, no, I guess just, you know, follow along on, on Instagram at wooden sleepers. That's like the best way to keep in touch with what's going on with the brand and the shop. And, um, I've actually been doing a lot of sales that way through our stories, which has been fun and people seem to be really responding well to that. So, um, if you want like a first peek at new product, that's a great way to, uh, get that. And yeah, stay tuned for, for announcements about the showroom. And I think that's about it. Thank you so much awesome. for having me on and indulging me 
uh, with all these stories and stuff. And uh, I really appreciate your yeah, time. Man. Oh, my pleasure. This is uh, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you aren't already. And while you're there, perhaps leave a review. It absolutely helps more than you think. Please give Standard H a follow on Instagram at Standard H underscore, as well as the podcast page at Standard H underscore podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise canceling headphones. Stay tuned for the next Standard Age podcast in two weeks' time, and thanks again for listening.